So I have a whole lot of different scriptures today, and I'm just going to read them to you, and the references will be on the screen. If you want to look them up in your Bible, you can. I would welcome you to do that. I'll even mention the references, but you might be frustrated by the time you find it. I've already moved on. If you happen to have a smartphone, you can load the Bible app, and you can look for an event near you, and you can follow along that way. That might be helpful to you. Um, We've been talking about where you look when you're in need. Who do you look to when you're in need? And today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and in preparing for this, I kind of want to get your mind to focus on a problem that all of us kind of face. It's pretty much a common dilemma, and it goes like this. It says, I want to, when I am in need, I want to look to someone who's greater than me, but my problem is I want to look to someone who's kind of like me. So I want someone who's good and great and smart and wise and intelligent. And because I'm not any of those things sometimes, I, I can't, they can't connect with me. I need someone who's like me, someone who's been in my skin, someone who experiences my stuff. And so we have this dilemma. Let me kind of try to illustrate it um, through my buddy Willis, okay? Willis um, is having trouble with anger. And so he says, I've got to deal with this anger issue because he sees how it's damaging his life. It's hurting his marriage. It's alienating his children from him. It's hurting his relationship with his friends, with his extended family. And so finally, on his own initiative, Willis decides, I'm going to go to a counselor who's going to help me with this anger. And so he doesn't go to just any counselor. He looks around, he shops around, he finds this guy who has many degrees in counseling, psychology. The guy teaches. He's just, the guy knows what he's talking about. He's just the authority on anger management. And so he goes to see this doctor, what's his name? When he gets there, he sits down with Dr. What's-His-Name, and Dr. What's-His-Name is very impressive. I mean, he uses $10 words all the time. He talks about different kinds of anger, sources of anger, nipping anger in the butt, how to, how to kind of to take out um, anger from the picture before it happens, how to be a peacemaker instead of a war maker. This guy knows his stuff. He's doing a great job in the first couple sessions. But in the third session, Willis begins to feel like Dr. What's-His-Name doesn't really understand him. Willis thinks, this guy guy is so far above me, there's no way he knows what it's like to be me. In fact, from Willis's perspective, the doctor kind of was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. You know what that means, right? He's kind of privileged in a way that Willis is not privileged just by his birth. And if the doctor were real honest with himself, the doctor would have to admit, I really don't understand Willis. I've never been in the situations that Willis finds himself in on a daily basis. I've never had to deal with the anger. He's, I don't know if I can help him. Willis recognizes that right away after three sessions. And so he says, I guess maybe someone who's wise and, and schooled and who knows stuff isn't going to be able to help me. I need to find somebody like me. And so he goes to his buddy at work, whose name happens to be Buddy. And he says, buddy, I am struggling with some really serious anger. You've probably seen it here in the workplace. And it's, I don't know where it's coming from, but it's a terrible, terrible thing. And, and it's alienated my children from me and my wife from me. My parents can't even stand being around me. And, and it's incredibly serious. I need some help. How do, how do I deal with this anger that I'm dealing with? And his buddy says this. His buddy is dismissive. And buddy says, meh, everyone feels that way, Willis. You worry too much. And Willis was like, what? You know what it feels like to be me. I mean, we married sisters for crying out loud. We work at the same place. We went to the same school. You know what it feels like. The best you got is everybody feels that way. I worry too much. 
You're not helping me. And so Willis finds himself in this dilemma. He either chooses between the doctor who knows a lot but doesn't know him or the person who knows him but doesn't know stuff. He feels like this just isn't working for me. I need to look to someone who gets me and I need to look to someone who has some sense of authority on how I can change. I'm just going to say this. Ready? Willis needs to look to Jesus. That's who Willis needs to look to. And so do we. We're in this sermon series called, Where Do You Look When You Are In Need? Where do you look? I mean, when you're in trouble, who do you look to? When you need answers, where do you look? If you need power, if you need motivation, if you need change, if you need help, if you need a peace in the midst of a very stressful time, if you need some direction in your life, if you need to rethink things, where do you look? And kind of the approach we're taking here is we've been looking at the Alliance Stand. This is in Alliance Church. We have a statement of faith. We call it the Alliance Stand. And we're kind of working our way through it. Last week, we talked about looking to the Father. It wasn't last week. It was three weeks ago we were together. We talked about looking to the Father. <coughs> and that's a great place to look because he's a good, good Father. Today, I want to show you another place to look, not instead of looking at the Father, but in addition to looking to the Father, I want you to look to Jesus, to look to the Son. Now, I want to say to you that when you're talking about a ministry or looking at a ministry, almost all of them have this thing called their statement of faith or their beliefs or their doctrine or whatever. And when you do that, in this world where ministries abound on the internet, one of the most important things for you to look at is who's Jesus? Who do these people feel that Jesus is? Because he's really the central point of Christianity. After all, it's called Christianity, Christianity, right? So what's the perspective on Jesus? If we're going to look to him, who is he? I just want to read over the statement of faith here. I'm not sure it's all on a page. I think the formatting messed up there. So you'll have to listen to me. Here's what it says. Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. Did you catch that? True God, true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a, catch this phrase, substitutionary sacrifice. All who believe in him and are justified on the ground of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures. He is now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. He will come once again to establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. Wow, that's a mouthful. What I want to do is I kind of want to look at that, and from that I want to help you understand why Jesus is worth looking to. And I I'm going to use a couple terms that they're the kind of words, they're like $10 words. They're the kind of words they make some people sit up and pay attention, they make other people shut down and say, I don't know what he's talking about. Don't do that, because I'll help you understand all of these words as we're going along. Don't shut down. The first word I want to show you, or the first thing I want to talk about regarding Jesus and why he's worth looking at, is the hypostatic union. Now, as soon as I say hypostatic union, I know there's some of you that are like, That sounds like something I'm going to need to use if my toilet breaks and I need a union to hook the plumbing back together, a hypostatic union. And others of you are saying, hypostatic union, wasn't that the transmission that was in that old 53 Buick? It it had a Dynamax or a Hydromatic or a hypostatic, or was it a flux capacitor? I I don't remember, but it had something like that. What, What is a hypostatic union? No, it's not what it is. It's really easy to understand. The hypostatic, and hold on, and it's really important to understand, and I'm going to show you why. The hypostatic union is a union of the human and the divine. Hear that? The human, like you and me, and the divine, God, unified together. That only takes place in one person. 
And that person is Jesus Christ. Theologian Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, he says, the hypostatic union is the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person. Here's what that means. That Jesus Christ is fully God. And Jesus Christ is fully man. And that divine nature and that human nature are unified in him so that he's not half God and half man, like I'm half Scottish and half Irish. He is fully God and he is fully man. And that is the hypostatic union. Now, remember I said some of you, it'll cause you to sit up like, hey, that's cool, new word. I like new words. And others of you are like, ah, what is that? That doesn't mean anything to me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. The hypostatic union is really an important concept. There are some really important reasons that Jesus had to be human. And one of them is because as a human, Jesus could be your representative. Now, at the end of this service, we're going to take communion. It's up there, the bread and the cup. Communion, and when you think of communion, you might remember your pastor saying or reading yourself in the scripture how Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And a covenant is an agreement. We call marriage a covenant between a man and a woman where they agree to love each other and care for one another and grow together. It's a covenant. Jesus says that this bread, this cup, is a new covenant in my blood. And when he's saying that kind of thing, he's saying, I am establishing a new covenant, a new contract, a new relationship between God and man. Well, how does he speak for humans? I mean, how does he make a covenant on my behalf? If he's not human, he can't speak for me. He can't act for you. But the Bible says that it is because he is human that he can do this. That just as Adam represented all of humankind in the Garden of Eden when he ate the forbidden fruit, so Jesus could represent all of humankind when he died on the cross for your sins and mine. It says that in Romans 5. In verse 18 it says, Consequently, just as one sin, or trespass, just as one sin resulted in a condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as Through disobedience of the one man, that would be Adam's disobedience in eating the forbidden fruit, just as that made all sinners, so through the obedience of one man, Jesus on the cross, many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus' humanity is essential. He's like you, and so he could represent you in this covenant. He could be a representative before God. And he had to be human so that he could be our substitute on the cross. You know, today again is Communion Sunday and we're celebrating the death of Jesus. Do you ever think how weird that very phrase is? Celebrating the death of Jesus. The only death that I would naturally celebrate would be the death of an enemy, right? I mean, who celebrates the death of a friend? Something's wrong with your head if you're doing that unless you understand that his death brought some kind of benefit. And it did. It brought your redemption. It brought atonement. It made it possible that you could be forgiven for your sin. It made it possible that you could live a new life. We celebrate Jesus' death because as being one of us, a human, he could take our place in judgment. The Bible says in Hebrews 2.17, For this reason, Jesus had to be made just like us, fully human in every way, in order that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that, and here's a phrase, he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Make atonement, that means cover him over. 
cover over our sins so they're never to be seen again. He made atonement, the scripture says, through his blood. He had to be human to do that. And he had to be human so that he could be an example to us in life. Okay, now most of us who are seated here are from central Pennsylvania. How many of you, I'm a central Pennsylvania person, put your hand up right here. Come on, man, let's see it, yeah. Okay, good, almost all of us, right? Where are you from? Mr. Farley, your hand wasn't up. Oh, okay, just checking. Okay, good deal. Didn't have his hand up, right? I'm just helping you. Okay, yeah, we're from central Pennsylvania, right? Rural Pennsylvania. Can I say that? We're from rural Pennsylvania. I wear that like a badge. I'm from rural Pennsylvania, right? Here's something else I wear like a badge. I'm from Appalachia. Yeah, I am. I am. And, and here, this is another thing. You might not wear this like a badge, but I'll wear it. Hillbilly, right there. I'm a hillbilly. Yeah, call me that. Okay. Now, you might not want to go that far, but just give me the rural Pennsylvania thing. You're from rural Pennsylvania. Um, there's something about us in rural Pennsylvania. We hate it when outsiders come here and tell us how to live. We do. I don't want no outsider coming in here and telling us how to live. One time, Ed McCauley, who grew up in Westover, which is like 18 miles from here, he was running for mayor of the town. I'm with a bunch of good Kermansville folks down at Unimart getting my coffee in the morning. I said, so you voting for the guy that lives next door, Ed McCauley, for mayor? He's running for mayor here. And they said, you mean that outsider? I said, well, yeah, he's 18 miles away. I guess so. He is, he's only lived here 15 years. He is an outsider. You're right. Yeah. yeah. We don't want outsiders telling us how to live. By the way, that's not just because we're from rural Pennsylvania. From New York to California, nobody likes someone on the outside telling them how to live. It's just us rural Pennsylvanians aren't afraid to admit it. That's the difference between us and the rest of the world. But Jesus tells us how to live, not as an outsider, but as an insider. He's human. He's like you. He's like me. He wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born in a barn, for crying out loud. He's like us. And so the Bible rightly proclaims that whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Or does Jesus get off thinking he can be an example for us? He's one of us, so he can. Moreover, he had to be human so that he could be our high priest, our intercessor, someone who can empathize with us. You know that you can never truly understand someone until you've walked in their shoes. That's uh, supposedly a Native American proverb. You can't understand a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. So, Yeah, I understand that. I get that. I can remember when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh, my roommates were all from Philadelphia, Allentown, the city, and I'm from rural Pennsylvania. We were there together to university. This was in the day when they pumped your gas. It was usually a high school student pumping your gas there. And I can remember um, I was sitting there, I was driving, and we had, I had a carload of guys. Now think about that. Here's a carload of, of guys, and we're all headed to a bar in New York. I'm pretty sure that's what we were doing. Shouldn't have been doing that, but that's what we were doing. And um, I can remember uh, when I pulled up, I said to the guy, would you fill it up, please? And the guys in the car said, pump the gas, jerk. But they didn't say jerk because they fancied themselves as poets. You figure that out. Pump the gas, jerk. You know, that's what they're saying. And I can remember it just stunned me. Why would you talk to him like that? Now, here's why that bothered me. Because when I was in high school, that's what I did. 
And I knew what it felt like to pump gas. I knew what it was like to be along Interstate 80 at exit 13 and have six cars pull in all at once on a rainy day, all of them wanting gas and oil checked right now, and other ones were waiting there for gas. I knew what that felt like. Someone said, pump the gas, jerk. I would have made a new hole for their gas right in their fender right there, you know? That's how it would have felt, right? Yeah. I felt bad for that kid because I sympathized with what he was doing. He's just a 17-year-old kid working at a service station, so he has some money for gas for his own car. My buddies couldn't sympathize with him at all because, <laughs> because they'd never been there. Jesus can sympathize with you because he's been there. And he never insults you by saying, get it right, jerk. Jesus never does that because... We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, Hebrews 4.15 says, but rather we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. You see, if Jesus had not been human, he could not have done any of those things. But because he's human, he knows what it's like to be you. But he's not just human. Jesus is divine. He's God. And if he were only human, it might feel good that Jesus knows what we feel like, but it doesn't do us any real good. His deity, the fact that he is God, is essential to our salvation. Only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for all our sins, all the sins of those who believe in him. A mere human could never do that. The Bible says that Jesus is divine over and over again. In fact, there's a Christmas passage that you hear from time to time. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's written 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And it's telling about his arrival. And and it says, For unto us a son is born. For unto us a son is given. And a government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Did you hear that one? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is all of the above. He's God, so he can carry your sins. Jesus said he was God. John chapter 8, Jesus is in this debate with these religious leaders of his day, and and he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And and they say, you're not even 50 years old. Abraham died over a thousand years ago. What's wrong with your head, buddy? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you. Listen, when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he says, Take this to the bank. This is important. Don't miss this. He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now some of you know because I love telling this story, Jehovah's Witnesses are at my door. We're talking about whether Jesus is God or not. They say Jesus is not God. I say Jesus is God. I say, let's look at John 8. And they say, your Bible's no good. I say, give me your Bible. I read in their Bible. And sure enough, it doesn't say before Abraham was born, I am. It says before Abraham uh, is born something else. I can't even remember what it says, but it's wrong. And, and I said to them, how come your Bible says something completely different than every other Bible? And they said, because our Bible is right. And I said, well, let's look at the very next verse. And the very next verse says that this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why would you pick up stones to stone someone who's not saying anything blasphemous? In the religious leadership's mind, when Jesus said before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus was saying, I'm God. And they would stone him for such blasphemy in their minds. Jesus didn't shy away 
from telling people he was divine. And when you understand that he is fully human, and when you understand that he is fully divine, then you understand that your dilemma is solved. You can look to someone who has the answers. He has the degrees on his wall. He's God, for crying out loud. And you can look to someone who's your buddy and knows what it's like to be you, because he does. He's worth looking at because he is a hypostatic union. He's worth looking to because of his virgin birth. It says in a statement, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. You guys remember Larry King, right? He was on CNN. Might have been the last cable talk show that had any sense of civility to it, right? Larry King interviewed people from Marlon Brando to Lady Gaga. He was a quintessential everyman interviewer. He didn't try to be smart. He didn't try to trick him. He didn't try to put him in a hole. He just said, I'm going to ask you the questions that everybody would like to hear. One time someone was interviewing him. And they said to him, you've interviewed all kinds of people. If you could go into history and interview one guy, who would that be? Or one man or one woman, who would it be? And he said, Jesus. And they said, well, what kind of question would you ask him? What would you like to ask him? And, and this is what King said. He said, I would like to ask Jesus if he was indeed virgin born, because that answer would define history for me. Yeah, baby, it sure would. If Jesus is virgin born, that changes everything. Everything. If he is born of the Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit of God came to this maiden, this young girl in Israel and said, I am going to miraculously implant a seed in you, the Messiah in you. You're going to carry God's Son, the Redeemer of humankind. That changes everything. Everything. And he did change everything. Mary learns this, that she's going to carry Jesus. And she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be called the Son of God. And that changes everything. And it makes Jesus the one to look to. It should make you look to Jesus. More than that, you want to look to Jesus because he is the substitution. He died in your place. And that creates a sense of gratitude in your heart. This week at Mahaffey Camp, someone came to me, they texted me ahead of time, and then they met me on the campgrounds and they said, I have this envelope. I would like to to give it to someone, but I don't want them to know who it came from. Would you please give this to them and don't tell them that that it came from me? So there at Mahaffey Camp, I got that and I contacted our mutual friend and and I gave gave the envelope and I I, I said, "Um, I don't know what this is. This could be hate mail for all I know because I hadn't opened it, right? And, And I said, here it is. And they said, oh, okay. And they took it and they left. The next day they hunted me down and they said, That was not hate mail. That was not hate mail. That is just what we needed. I don't suppose you can tell me where it came from. I said, you know I can't tell you where it came from. Will you please tell them how thankful we are? We are so thankful for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That gratefulness. That's what happens when someone does something meaningful for you. It creates within you a sense of gratitude. And it causes them to look not just for the one who gave, but it causes them to look to the one who gave. Every now and then, when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I will explain to them that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. And they'll be kind of like, you know, oh, that's kind of cool. So what do I need to do? Well, you need to ask God to forgive you, say that you trust Jesus, turn from your sins, and fall off to him. Okay, yeah, I guess I can do that. Nope, 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 nope. You don't get it. You don't get it. 
Because if it's a, I guess I can do that kind of thing, you don't have the sense of gratitude. You don't understand the depth of your loss. You don't understand the despair that exists apart from the work of Christ in your life. But when you get that, when you see your need and you understand, he died in my place, he was my substitute, then you get it. Very rarely will anyone, the Bible says, die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly die. But in Romans 5, 8, it goes on to say, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Upon a cross, the just for the unjust, a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who believe in him are justified on the ground of his shed blood. He died for us. He took our place. I want to look to someone who loved me that way. And I want to look to Jesus because of the resurrection. He rose from the dead, our statement of faith says, according to the scripture. You, you look to Jesus because his tomb is empty. Muhammad's tomb, Buddha's tomb, Krishna's tomb. If we could find them, they would all have bones in them. But you find Jesus' tomb, it's going to be empty. He alone is the risen one. And that is what gives us a sense of confidence concerning our forgiveness. Because his resurrection is evidence that his sacrifice of himself on the cross counted. In Romans chapter 10, verse 11 says, as the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You look to him because of the resurrection. And you look to him because of his intercession. Do you know what it means to intercede for someone? Somebody's in trouble, they're in trouble with the law or whatever, and you have some kind of clout some, for some reason. And so you go in and you say, hey, my, my buddy, I know he's in trouble. He did the wrong thing here, but I'd like to speak on his behalf. And I'd like, would you give him a, a break this time because he's my buddy? That's intercession. Jesus does that on our behalf. Our statement of faith says he's now at the right hand of the majesty on high as our great high priest. I need someone at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me ask you this, those of you that are Christians. Do you ever sin? Of course you do. Of course you do. Do you ever struggle with temptation? Of course you do. Do you ever cave to it? Absolutely. Well, then you're in trouble deep, right? Not exactly. Because you have one who intercedes on your behalf. And he doesn't just go before the Father and say, hey, can you give him a break this time? Kind of like, you know, can you do something? He goes to the Father. He is at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he says, yes, Steve sinned. And yes, Steve shouldn't have sinned. And yes, Steve has confessed his sin. I died for that sin. Me. I paid for Steve's sin. And because of my death on the cross, Father, I am interceding on his behalf that he not be shown the judgment he deserves. Does that fill your heart with gratitude? It should. Does that let you know that you should look to Jesus? It should. We look to him because because the enemy would accuse us, condemn us. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for him, for us. Yeah, we look to him for his intercession. One more. We look to him for his return. He's coming again. Statement of faith says he'll come to establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. 
You know, it's Communion Sunday, and in Communion Sunday, you often hear the pastor, or maybe you read it yourself, and 1 Corinthians 11 says, whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you do therefore proclaim the Lord's death until, anybody remember the end? Until he comes. Until he comes. And the Christians thought of this as a blessed hope. Every now and then you'll run into Christians who will say something like, oh, the world's getting so bad. It's just getting so terrible. I'm not sure what's going to happen yet. next. I think Jesus might be coming. No first century Christian who was in the know would have said that. And no 21st century Christian in the know should say this. You look at the world, you say, this world's getting bad. It seems like it's going to Hades in a handbasket. And, and it looks like Jesus is returning. Thank God. That's a blessed hope. Can't wait till he gets here. That's a good thing. The Bible says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. And what's the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are a lot of reasons to look to the Son. As we prepare for communion, I want to throw these up here kind of as questions for you to consider. And I want you to just kind of think through these questions just for the sake of logic and for the sake of your spirit. And the first is this. Who has authoritative answers and yet knows your life path intimately? Well, you should probably look to him. Who, by his birth, stands out uniquely among others we could look to? You should probably look to him. Who took your place, acting as your substitute, so you could avoid judgment? You should probably look to him. Who conquered the grave? You should probably look to him. Who lives to intercede for you when you mess up? And by the way, that's the exact phrase the author of Hebrews uses of Jesus. He says, he ever lives to intercede for us, or he lives to ever intercede for us. It's like, this is what I'm here for. This is why I'm at the right hand of the Father, to intercede on your behalf. Who does that when you mess up? You should probably look to him. And who's coming back to get you? (laughs) You should probably look to him.